Amen. Amen. You can take your seats. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this, today marks the first day of a, a summer-long series while Pastor Jamie's on sabbatical. Uh, and the topics of, in the series were actually recommended by you all. We asked you to answer that question up there. What does God have to say about fill in the blank? And you filled in the blank. You asked some really good topics, some really hard ones that we're not going to address at all. We're going for the lower shelf. Nah, not really. So this one was intriguing to me. And there were, uh, quite a, there were several questions about the question of anger. And so uh, I, I picked this time. We, we have uh, three other guys who are going to be preaching through the summer. Uh, Darren, um, who was just up here, Darren Violet. And then uh, Josh Pariski, our new youth guy. And um, Greg Masati. In fact, in a couple of weeks, he's going to take on the subject of anger as well. That's how many questions we had. So um, this way, if you, if you want to go to your Bible, we're going to just go to a few places. Genesis 4, Jonah 4, Job 2, 1 Samuel 6. Got that? Just stick your fingers right in your book. All right, I'll put, this, I'll put the verses up on the screen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are made in your image. And everything that we experience in our emotional life is not a mystery to you, but sometimes a mystery to us. And so as we come to this subject about our anger, we pray that your spirit will teach us what we need to know, but more importantly, will shape us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. So um, I'm, I'm going to make a pretty good guess that everybody in this room has experienced some level of anger. Yes? Somebody says, no. I want to talk to you after the service. I'd like to know your secret. Um, but not all anger is equal. There are variations in anger. Some of it is mild, like a mild irritation or frustration. Like, you know, you're getting your kids off to school, uh, maybe, and you're pouring the cereal out, and you find out there's no milk. Just eat up, kids, and go, you know. That's what you got to do. That's how sort of a mild frustration. Uh, then there's the veiled kind of anger where you're making judgments just in your mind or you're passive aggressive. Like on the outside, you're all pleasant and everything is really nice, but inside you're boiling, you're angry at this person. Uh, sometimes the anger is very intense. Uh, bitterness, hostility, violence even. So it's no surprise when Paul lists um, all, you know, his, his list of sins in the Bible, at least half of every list has to do with some form of the angry family. Now, there's usually two responses that we have to, to uh, uh, anger or how we respond or, you, or, yeah, respond to anger. First one is we stuff it. We're, we're stuffers. We're not going to get mad. Nobody ever got mad in my house. We're never going to get mad. We're just going to stuff it. And if you do that for years, you'll get a physical problem. Yes? Now, there's the other kind that says, go ahead, vent it. God is big. He's got broad shoulders. He knows you're mad. Besides, it says in the Bible, be angry and don't sin. So go ahead. Let him have it. Those are the two ways that we mostly hear to deal with our anger. But I'm going to suggest to you there is a third way this morning. But in order to get there, we're going to look at what the Bible says about anger. Now, the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at four people, Cain, Jonah, 
Mrs. Job, Job's wife, and David. And that's why we're going to those different places. So let's go right, uh, let, me, let me, as a preface, let me say this, because I have to frame these, these four stories in a particular way. Nothing in these stories ever says outright, this is not a good idea to be angry at God this way, right? There's no verse that says that. But when you read carefully and you think about how the author is presenting the story, you get a sense of the tone uh, that the author gives, that he's not commending this at all. He's telling us the truth about what happened, but this is not commendable. So let's take a look at the, the very first uh, subject on our list, Mr. Cain of Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, what's interesting here, I want to stop and say, there's no difference between these two offerings. You know, sometimes commentators will say, well, it's because, you know, Abel brought this and Cain only brought that. And that's, that's not true. In fact, I heard somebody translating and say, you know, Cain, uh, Cain brought some of his offering. And I, and I looked into the language. It doesn't say that. It says Cain brought this, Abel brought that. And we know in the Old Testament that a fatted calf or a lamb or something is a perfectly legitimate offering, but so is a grain offering. It's in the book of Leviticus, so it's okay. So that's not the issue. The issue is not what was brought. Let's read on. So when Cain heard that God was not happy with his offering, Cain was very angry, and his face fell, which I take to mean he pouted. Like that, something like that. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? Pick it up off the ground, guy. No, he didn't say that. That's not there. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but, this is important, you must rule over it. Now, if I told you or anybody told you that outside that door there's a crouching lion, not a little kitty, but a, a crouching lion ready to pounce on you the minute you go out that door, what door would you go out? That door, right? You wouldn't hesitate for a moment. And I find this fascinating because between these two verses, between verse 7 and verse 8, it's almost like a silence happens. The most natural question I think that Cain could have asked at this moment was, okay, what do I do about it? I cannot master my sin. What do I do? That would be the most natural question. But notice he does not ask that question. And I want to know why. So look what he does next. Cain spoke to his brother, Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he, and he killed him. He killed him, the first murder in the Bible. So what was wrong? What was going on? Well, this, uh, Moses doesn't tell us. Moses is the author here. But if we go over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we find out what the issue is because it's a matter of worship, and worship is a matter of the heart. And here's what the author to Hebrews says about uh, Cain and Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he, that is Abel, was commended as righteousness, commending him by accepting his gifts. See the difference? Faith. Abel had faith, faith in his heart, that when he brought his offering to God, God existed, God would be pleased, 
because he was humble enough to worship God. Cain was not like that. In fact, because there was no faith in God in Cain's heart, the Bible describes that as an evil heart. It was evil because Cain rejected God's authority in command of worship. God is very clear about how worship was to take place in both Old and New Testament, particularly in the Old. As Darren was pointing out, there were very particular laws that had to be obeyed. And if they were not obeyed, that was not faithful worship. It was not faith in God. Cain's attitude was more like, you know, God, you ought to be happy that I showed up in church today. Come on. Other people might say, well, I don't need to gather with Christians. You know, I worship God in my own way. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. I take walks in the forest, and I sing with the birds, and I look at the butterflies, and I think how wonderful it is. Come on. We've all heard that stuff. God has commanded his people to gather together. Do not forsake the gathering of yourself together. Now, it's okay. Go take a walk in the forest. Not right now, please. Don't. It's raining. Don't even go. I love why hiking in the mountains and forests and everything else, but there's a time reserved for God. It's called the Lord's Day. So, that's Cain. He was denying God's authority in his life. Now, let's go, let's go to our second exhibit, and that's Jonah. Now, I have to set this up for us before we get to these verses. This is in the last chapter of Jonah. Remember the story God, God said to Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, which is a wicked city, an enemy of all the people of God. I want you to go there because I'm about to judge them, and I want you to preach that I'm going to judge them and call them to repentance. Every single person from top to bottom, even the cows got in on the act somehow. And so, Cain, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Jonah says, no thanks, and he takes off. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes the other direction, absolutely the other direction, 180 degrees. So he goes in the other direction. He gets into a boat. He's trying to sail as far away from God as he could possibly go. And then a big storm comes up, and all the sailors are terrified. And, they, and they're wondering, how come this is going on? Who is the problem here? And Cain, uh, I'm still in the old story. Um, Jonah says, oh, well, it's me. And they said, oh, we got a solution. We're throwing you overboard, buddy. He goes, and the storm calms down. And there's this great big fish, bigger than jaws. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a big fish. Uh, not a whale, it's just a big fish. And he swallows him up. And there he is in the belly of the whale, and he says, oh God, help, right? Wouldn't you? And so God does this most amazing thing. He, he gets that big fish to turn around and get right up to Nineveh's shore and spit out Jonah right on the shore where he was supposed to be. So Jonah, reluctantly still, he's not happy about any of this, mind you, he walks through the town of Nineveh preaching that God is about to judge this place, and you all better repent, and if you do, God will have mercy on you. And inside he's saying, but I hope not. I don't like you people. You're our enemies. I hate you, and I hope God is not merciful. But you all better do it because God sent me to do this, and you wouldn't believe how I got here. Guess what happens? The whole city repents. Every single person, 100%. It's like a revival broke out in Nineveh, which is not a Jewish city. It belongs to the Gentiles. And Noah is ticked. His beans are steamed, as a friend of mine used to say. 
And he is really mad that God had mercy on these people he hates. And so it's a hot day, and he goes to look for some shade, and there's a big gourd under which he sits, and he's still mad, and God makes the gourd go like this. So now he's out in the hot sun again. And here's the dialogue between he and God in verse 1. But it dis- what it is, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It was the mercy of God, the mercy God had on these people. It displeased Jonah that God had mercy on people Jonah hated. And the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? And down in verse 9, after the gourd has collapsed, uh, he said, uh, but Jonah said, uh, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? See, the plant was there. It was merciful. It was merciful shade. And then it was gone. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What do you think the author's attitude is towards Jonah? It's not very kind. He's not commending Jonah in his anger whatsoever. In fact, he is showing Jonah to be selfish, arrogant, and despising of the mercy of God that he's been a benefit of. All right, let's go on to Job's wife. Now, again, we'll set the story. I'm sure many of you know the story of Job. In the first two chapters especially, God, there's a day when the sons of God appear before God, and with them is Satan. And uh, jo- God actually starts all this, and he says, Hey, hey, Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Righteous man. Job, uh, Satan says, Oh, yeah, you just wait. If you, if you do anything nasty to him, he will curse you to your face. And God says, All right. Go ahead. Here's your limits. You can only do this much. So, of course, it's a very tragic thing that happens to Job. He, he loses all of his children and their spouses, his livestock, his home, everything. And uh, he still praises God. And he says, you know, naked I came into this world. Naked I'm going out. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's an amazing response, isn't it? It's worshipful. So then the next day, I suppose it is, that Satan and all the sons of God come along, and Satan is really mad. I mean, he's just really upset. Like, how in the world can this happen? And so God says, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? Pretty good guy, huh? And he goes, oh, yeah, but you touch his body, you give him an illness, and he will curse you to your face. So God says, okay. You can't kill him, but you can do whatever you want. And Job is afflicted with these painful, sore, oozing boils. I mean, he has to scrape them off him. They're so hurtful, painful, fire everywhere. And then Satan comes out in the form of Mrs. Job. And she says to him, what is wrong with you? Is what she says. Why are you... um, No, I have to back up. I'll get this right in a minute. Just uh, don't look. Okay, let's get in the right book, Bob. All right. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women. 
uh, would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Notice what the author says. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, but guess who did? Mrs. Job said exactly what Satan said. Job would say, she said it, curse God and die. She, she cursed God to his face. Now, why, why was she upset? What was her anger? What was the motive of her anger? She suffered the same losses that her husband did. I mean, these are very serious things. I don't want to make light of it all. You know, I think they had 10 children. They lost all 10 and all their spouses, all, you know, all, the, all the livestock that went with being a wealthy man like Job was. And, 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 you know, I guess their houses were blown down. It was just a mess. And she was angry and she was hurt and she was frustrated. But she expected God to do something, and he didn't do it, and that's why she was mad. She expected God to protect them. Have you ever heard anybody, or has anybody ever asked you, if God is so good, why do these terrible things happen? That's the number one question that are asked of Christians, the gospel, and the Bible by unbelievers everywhere. It's a good question to ask, although I don't think they'll always like the answer. But it is, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Why Could he not stop them from happening? People want to know that, and so they don't believe that he's strong enough or powerful enough or good enough. All right, so let's step back from these three and let's look at a possible de uh, definition for anger. And the one that I like came from this book by Robert D. Jones called Uprooting Anger, A Biblical Help for Common Problem. I used this book several years ago on myself when I found it. I thought it was very helpful. I was dealing with uh, anger that I could not, some anger I could not control. And I didn't really understand where it was coming from or how I could get help. I, I knew I needed help. I found this book, and it's almost a workbook in some ways, and takes you through a lot of scriptures. And as I was going through the book, God was beginning to minister to me some things that I needed to know about on how to deal with these out-of-control emotions. And here's the definition that he proposed. And I like this definition because it cuts both ways when it comes to righteous and unrighteous anger. Righteous and unrighteous anger. Anger. This definition fits both of those occasions. Look at what he says. Anger is a whole person, that is, everything is involved, mind, soul, strength, will, everything about us is involved in anger. Anger is a whole person, active response of a, to a negative, response of a negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. Okay, let me say that again since I butchered it so poorly. Anger is a whole person, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. We see something that's evil, and we get angry at it. Now, if you're old enough to remember, maybe you still know about Anybody ever heard of Mothers of, uh, Against Drunk Driving? MAD? Anybody ever heard of it? It's an organization that began in 1980 by um, Candace Leitner. Candace Leitner's 13-year-old daughter was hit and killed by a drunk driver. And she turned that anger and that rage and, and all of that against an evil called drunk driving. And that, has, that organization, along with many others, but certainly that one, has saved multiple lives in our country. Righteous anger that is turned against an evil like that is a good thing because it, it saves lives. But this definition also also 
applies for unrighteous anger, and that's the anger we see uh, in Cain and Jonah and Mrs. Job. Remember what it is. It's a, it's a uh, negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. All three, Cain, uh, Jonah, Mrs. Job, perceived an evil in God. They perceived an insufficiency in God. They perceived something wrong in God, and they were angry at him. Now, anger at sin is good, but anger at goodness is sin. Anger at sin is good, but anger at goodness is sin. That's why it's never okay to be angry with God, because we are assuming then that he is less than perfect. We are assuming that he is not merciful, and yet he has revealed himself to be always just, always merciful, always good, no matter how strange and painful his ways with us may be. Don't we have that, that thing we say, you know, God's good. Go ahead. All the time. All the time. Is there ever a time when God is not good? You know, the first sin in the garden was rooted right in that very issue with God. Is he good? See, the sa- Satan, the serpent, told them he's not really good because he doesn't want you in on, the, in on the really important stuff. So he can't be good. That was the first sin in the garden. And notice how many times from there, all the way through the book of Revelation, we are told God is good, God is good, God is good. And I've struggled with this myself. I've told people... God is going to be good to you. They'll come and we'll talk, we'll pray. God's going to be good to you. But I'm never so sure God's going to be good to me. Why? Because I'm believing the lie. God is not good enough. All right, so what are we going to do about it? How do godly uh, men in the Bible deal with their anger? So let's deal with David. I told you there was a third way, and this is, this is my suggestion to you. Now, um, Darren had, had made mention of this. The Ark of the Covenant was not, was not in Jerusalem in the tabernacle during David's time, and he wanted to bring the Ark up to Jerusalem. And when I say up, I mean literally, it's up. It was down in the valley, he wanted to bring it up. And so uh, he, he organized a big celebration, and this is, this is how we read it. First Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And David arose and went with all of the people who were with him to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets, and symbols, and, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there. Because of his error, he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. You see what's happening. Right, they put the ark of God on a, on a cart with oxen. They're leading it along. You know, it hits some sort of a pothole or something. The ark kind of jostles a bit like this. Uses probably walking alongside, and it goes like that in order to stop it from rocking or possibly even falling on the ground. And all of a sudden, he's dead. God killed him, clearly in the Scripture. God killed this man. 
That brought all the celebration to an end at that moment. You can almost sense it's just this hush. Now, what happened? David was angry, angry at God because he killed his friend. These were good friends, and God just killed his friend. Now, I should have put this other verse, verse 9, and I, and I totally forgot, but I'm just going to tell you what it says. So in verse 8, David is angry. David was angry. And in verse 9, it says a little bit, and then it says, and David feared the Lord. So between verse 8 and verse 9, between anger and fear of the Lord, between these two powerful emotions, something happened in David's heart that changed his approach to God. And here's what I think happened. The fear of the Lord is what drove David to God rather than away from God. David feared the Lord. At first he's furious, verse 8, because God killed his friend. And then, and then he feared the Lord. Why? Because he knew God could do no evil. God could do no wrong. And I think in the interim, what we see in the rest of the story tells us that there was a prescribed way that the Ark of the Covenant was to be transported. It wasn't to be put on a cart led by oxen, new or old. It was to be transported on the shoulders of the priests, carrying it with poles on their shoulders. That was the prescribed way. That didn't happen. In fact, in that prescription in the Old Testament, it says, if you don't do it that way, you will die. So God wasn't being unkind. He wasn't being unjust. In fact, he was being just. And he was making a point. I am God. I must be obeyed. And you have to fear and trust me in my judgments. At that moment, somewhere in David's heart, the proper fear of the Lord took hold. Now, there, are, there really are two kinds of fear. There's a fear that drives us away from God. Think Cain, think Job, uh, Mrs. Job, think Jonah. They feared the Lord in all the wrong way. David feared the Lord in the right way because he leaned into God and he trusted God. Eventually, the ark did come into Jerusalem. So what are we to make of this? When our disappointments arise in us and, and there is the pain of loss, and never let the pains of loss or these confusing circumstances stand in the way of talking honestly with God about your doubts, your fears, or your anguish. So I'm going to just say two things that, are, that make up the third way through stuffing and venting. Here's the third way the Bible prescribes. The first way is to remember the fear of the Lord. It's in the fear of the Lord that we find the tender mercies of God. Look at Psalm 103, verse 13. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to who? To those who fear the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord is like a little child. You know, if you've had little children or you've seen little children or grandkids and whatever, we know, we know that when they get a cut, you know, or an owie, what do they do? They come crying to you. It's painful. It hurts. 
They want you to fix it. Mom, Dad, so please take pity on me. I've got an owie right here. You know, put some something soothing on it and give me a really colorful Band-Aid or two or three because they look really cool. Now, if you are that mom or dad and your child is coming to you with these huge tears down her face, are you going to say, hey, kid, throw some dirt on it. It'll be fine. You wouldn't do that. No matter how small that problem seems to you, to your child, it's everything. It's everything. And your compassion comes out to them. You know it's not that big and serious an issue, but you're going to care for them. You're going to show tender mercy towards them. So does our Heavenly Father do with us. In the big things, in the little things, He comes to us in tender mercy. And the fear of the Lord causes us and prompts us to lean into him for help rather than to run away from him in some sort of accusation. And so that's the second thing we can do after that as we, uh, through that actually, is to promise the art of holy lamenting. Uh, we actually, um, uh, Becky read this verse earlier, so uh, I, I know we've got, you know, God, God is here because... She didn't know I was going to do this. I didn't know she was going to do it. But look what Psalm says in Psalm 62. Pour your heart out to God. Pour your heart out to God. It's the fear of the Lord that prompts us to go to God and pour our heart out to him. So what does that sound like? What, is it, what does it sound like to pour our heart out to God in a holy lament? You know, there's about 65 lament or complaint psalms in the Bible. And they experience everything from pain and sorrow and loss and sorrow over sin. They all have similar characteristics. They start out with a complaint about the present suffering that I'm going through, and then they move in a trustworthy direction towards God, seeking his favor. So lamenting and faith and trust and the fear of the Lord all go together. So what's it sound like when we get to God? What's that sound like? Let me give you two illustrations. One of them sounds like this. This is what I found a, a prayer that a father was praying because of some awful thing that happened to his son. And uh, he, he, he was angry. He was angry what took place in his son. But he went to God and he prayed this way. Father, it is precisely because I know that you are all loving and all powerful that I'm struggling with the seeming absence of your love and your power right now. It's because I am convinced that you are good that your chastisements are confusing to me. And it's because I believe in your covenant love that your apparent distance from me baffles me. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say to God? No accusation, no venting, no anger, no blasting God because he's not good enough. It's just like, I'm confused. You, you, I, I know you were good. You're good all the time. That's why this is so, un, I just don't understand it. I know you're sovereign all the time, and that's why I can't understand why things are so out of control. Here's another example, and this was from a friend of ours from many years ago who uh, we were coaching, he and his wife, and um, uh, they, they had some difficulty, but most of the difficulty was in this young man about things that had taken place in his life that he was just angry about. And he was angry with God and a whole lot of other people too, but mostly with God. And so we, we counseled and coached and worked and prayed and did a lot of things along the way. And finally at the end, when it, when it seemed like he was ready for it, we said to him, why don't you go home 
and write a lament prayer, like the ones we have been reading, and then come back and tell us what it is and what happened. Here's what he wrote. Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Why do you turn your back on me? Where have you gone? I feel like I'm standing alone. Bring your loving kindness back to me. Show me your goodness and your grace. Deliver me from myself and my pain. Only you, you, Lord, can deliver me. Dress me in your righteousness. Anoint me with your divine love. Watch over me in mine and keep us safe and secure. Oh, Lord, you are Lord over all. Your wisdom and your love spread over all the earth. Let me not turn my back to you again. Let me sing your praises. So we asked him, after he wrote that, what happened? He says, you know what? I felt relieved. I said, yeah, that's what God does in his goodness. Have your circumstances changed? No, but I feel relieved. I went, good. That's how we live. So, if you find yourself this morning moving towards God in anger, just take this third way and uh, think about these, th- these four things. First of all, refer- re- reaffirm your belief in the goodness of God to you in Christ. Secondly, renounce all temptation to accuse God of any wrongdoing, of finding anything evil or wrong or insufficient or unsatisfactory in God. Third, recognize your inability You cannot fathom God sometimes, but we're not told to do that. We're told to trust Him and to believe in Him and to move towards Him in humility. And finally, rest in in God's goodness. Remember Psalm 62, 8. Pour your heart out to Him. Now, if that's you and, and you need to do that, a holy lament is God's invitation for you to do something like that. You don't need to be, you don't need to be expressive like David or anything like that. You just need to write it out on paper. And if you need something to get started, you know, sometimes as uh, writers, we need a little prompting. Here's how you do it. You take out a sheet of paper, you got your pen, or maybe you're on your laptop, and re- put this first line up on the top of the page. Oh, lo- uh, oh Lord, how long, oh Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? And the rest will flow just like that. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are all-loving, all-powerful, and it is precisely because you are, you're all that and more, that we struggle so often when hard circumstances come into our lives. We get confused by the sense that you are a million miles away and you're silent. And like the psalmist said, Lord, if you are silent when we cry out to you in prayer, it feels like we're all alone in the universe with no help. But we also confess that we are convinced by your word that you are good. And even when you bring discipline into our lives, it's because you're dealing with us as children. And we are your children, the children of your redeeming love. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remind us when we are in difficult places to follow the example of David to fear the Lord, to move towards the Lord in trust and pour our hearts out to him fully, 
and to move towards the Father in faith and humility. We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.